Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Bloomington, Indiana. Today, I'm excited to talk with Michelle Fine about her new book, Just Research in Contentious Times, Widening the Methodological Imagination, published this year by Teachers College Press. Michelle Fine is a distinguished professor of critical social psychology, women's studies, and urban education at the Graduate Center, the City University of New York. Her remarkable works focus on marginalized social groups, such as dropout students, women prisoners, Muslim youth, and refugees. She champions a research approach which emphasizes the participation of community members as co-researchers, the advocacy of social justice, and the democratization of knowledge production. An approach that defines terms as critical participatory action research. Just research in contentious times documents finds long-term grounded research engagement in multiple projects, all employing this particular approach, critical participatory action research. The book blends her passion for social justice with thorough self-reflection and rigorous data analysis. It is a powerful and inspiring read for anyone who are interested in social justice work. With that, I will leave you to the interview and just to say thank you for listening to the channel. And I hope you enjoy. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to New Books in Education. Thank you, Penn Fei. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Sure, yeah. And also congratulations on publishing another powerful and a deeply touching book. Thank you. I found this a very interesting and inspiring read. Thank you. Yeah, before we uh, dive into the book, let's start by a more general question about your intellectual background and what leads you to this book, Just Research in Contentious Times. So you want to know about my intellectual background? Um, I, uh, Yeah? Yes, yes, go ahead. So, you know, as I say in the book, I feel like my work comes out of two different strands of ethical, cultural, intellectual DNA. On the one hand, um, I am the daughter of uh, Jewish refugees to this country. My mother, Rose, was the youngest of 18. Um, And 
my parents, Rose and Jack, arrived from Poland um, at a moment where both immigration and whiteness were working in their favor. So it's a moment that the historian Karen Brodkin Sachs called when the Jews became white. And so there were lots of opportunities available for immigrants. Um, So that's one strand of my life. And while my father sold junk on the Lower East Side and plumbing supplies and chased after the American dream, um, my mother carried a lot more of the sadness and depression and loss that is also the story of immigrants. but I think in some families that gets split often by gender. Um, and so I, because I was their youngest, I got to witness the um, the amazing reception that we got as immigrants, even though there was lots of anti-Semitism. I now understand, having done a lot of work in critical race theory, that our whiteness enabled a kind of easy pass into the political economy. But my mother's Sadness and depression um, and insecurities told another story. So I think I always understood that stories of progress are attached to stories of dispossession. At the same time, I went to graduate school um, at Teachers College, Columbia, and I studied with Morton Deutsch who was a justice theorist, and he was the student of Kurt Lewin. So I feel like on my other side, my academic DNA comes through a kind of um, radical commitment to imagining social research for social justice. Um, So in my work, I try to braid the kind of... um, wounds and wisdom that come from the radical margins with the um, often buried history of educational research and social research, psychological research done with social movements. There's a long and amazing history of that work, um, but it often gets uh, buried in the canon So I do what's called critical participatory research alongside social movements and communities that have been dispossessed. And I feel um, very lucky to to have been able to accompany the the wisdom and genius of folks who have been sent to the margins um, and together to do research that kind of retells a story of U.S. history and current social arrangements, oppressions, injustices, and resistance. Well, yeah. yeah. Thank you you for the um, such an overview of your intellectual journey and also your family background. You include a a very brief autobiography in this book as a first chapter. And I just found that autobiography is so powerful and uh, profound. I I resonate with you a lot when you talk about how your understanding of the society actually um, is derived from your observation, our understanding of your family. And in that aspect, I think your uh, 
uh, preservation from um, your childhood about the gender relationship in the family is very important. And also how you talk about your mother's sorrow or disposition. Um, I just found that aspect is very important to your um intellectual growth maybe and uh, would you like to say a little bit more about that um you know peng fei i i love that you can connect to that because um part of what i'm interested in is figuring out a way of writing that speaks from the stubborn particulars of lives and communities that then speak out to larger or, or other dynamics. And, and I like to think of that as what we call kind of provocative generalizability or theoretical generalizability or even affective generalizability, that even though other people's families are obviously very different than mine, that there's some element, what you called sorrow, which is really very beautiful, um, the, the travels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, as a kid growing up in a immigrant family, um, I had both the excitement and the shame that often accompanies that excitement because sometimes our parents are very excited to be in a country that looks like it's going to offer them opportunities that they didn't have back home. Um but also, I think because I was the youngest and um, home a lot with my mother, I also got to see, again, I love your language, her sorrows. And, and I understood that the story of privilege and the story of sorrow sleep together in this country. So when we, and, and maybe in every country, um, but it's not equally pleasurable for for everyone in sure. the bed. Um, and, and yeah, that maps on to gender, but it also maps on to class and race. And so when we now study impoverished communities or dispossessed or disinvested communities, I'm also interested in who's making money, who's doing a land grab, who's getting good education at the expense of the dispossession of this community. So it's that dynamic linkage that feels very, very important to me. Um, so it might have started in my parents' bedroom, but I think that's a, that's a, a, a hyphenated relationship that we need to understand better in education, in cultural theory, in critical psychology. Um, and I worry a little that most of our research, even even or especially progressive research, focuses on communities that have been dispossessed. And I understand why we do that. I've done it for 30 years but particularly these days, it's very apparent that some people are robbing other people of opportunities, dignity, resources, land, education, water. Um, some people, some races, and some corporations are, are really robbing the people. And um, it is no longer sufficient, I think, for us to simply focus 
on the strength, the resilience, the wounds in marginalized communities without understanding these dynamics of, of dispossession and accumulation of privilege. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm trying to take from the autoethnographic, which I'm increasingly encouraging students to do, to take from that and figure out what is this an instance of that we can then speak back to the larger culture. And, and I think I learned that from W.E.B. Du Bois when he wrote The Philadelphia Negro. And he was hired in 1898 to study, like, what's wrong with those Black people? Why are they always sick and not in school and getting picked up by the cops? And too many live in each house. And he understood he was being asked to pursue a racist question, but he flipped the script and looked back on structures and histories that produced a set of racialized problems, injected those into the Black community, and then he um, challenged white social scientists who dared to think that those problems started in the Black community rather than being the downstream consequences of racist, white supremacist histories and structures. So, so it has to do with like our line of analysis, and and that I do think I I, I got from the privilege of being the child of of um, of Jewish refugees, understanding that the troubles in um, marginalized communities are are flowing downstream from more dominant communities. So if I understand you uh, correctly, you are saying that we cannot just focus on those marginalized, disadvantaged in our study. I mean, surely we need to um, work with them. We need to study uh, we need to we need to focus on their um, sufferings, but we need we also need to go beyond that because it's the structural issues, the historical issues that uh, gave rise to some of the their um, sufferings, gave rise to some of like. Like those are still plaguing the society or plaguing their life. Is that, am I on the right track? You are so on the right track. So, so the only friendly amendment I would add is that, of course, those of us in the academy um, have an obligation and a desire to accompany social movements, dispossessed communities, communities that have been disinvested, marginalized, and oppressed. But the focus of our work needs to also be on the dynamics that are producing the injustice, the oppression, the marginalization, the lack of dignity, the misrecognition. Um, because we, we, we too are involved in like a repetition compulsion looking at the victims of social injustice without documenting the dynamics and the perpetrators. Um, and I don't mean to reproduce clean binaries, but I do mean to say there's a small group of people and corporations in this country 
that are making a lot of money on other people's pain, that are locking babies up in detention centers, that are privatizing prisons, that are closing public schools and selling vouchers and corporate charters, are dismantling that which is public um, and threatening those who are marginalized. And we need to be studying those dynamics as well. I see. And that really um, makes a very good connection to the book itself. Because in the book, I think there is uh, this so clear send a clearly send signal of responding to what is happening now what is happening to this country and in the world and i i just like one thing i really appreciate about the book is they um i feel like there are two focal points on the one hand it is a powerful response to what is happening now but on the other hand, you also add onto it historical accounts of different levels, like what we just discussed about your personal uh, growing up experience in this Jewish immigrant family, but also the yeah. you know your intellectual journey and the, the historical changes of the research sites where you have conducted your work. So I found the combination yeah. of the two very fascinating and want to make sure that we will have time to talk about both. The first of all, uh, I think we I think we've already touched upon this issue a little bit, but uh, to what extent this book is a response to the current social and political situation? Uh You know, so I feel like my work is always um, affectively and theoretically and ethically working off of the the, um, static electricity in our country. And because we work so closely with people on the ground that we have um, wisdom about the dynamics that are occurring before they um, reach popular imagination or consciousness. So doing participatory research with community groups and with social movements is like having, um, is like having access to, to early signs of earthquakes or having the hearing of dogs because we can hear and see and document things before they become visible to the general population. So this book was written in 2016. This was before um, the current administration was in power. Oh, that's that's Uh, before that. Yeah. So while it might resonate... Um, there's a wonderful book by a, a black social theorist named Christina Sharp, and it's called In the Wake. And she's looking at the notion of a wake in three ways. One is the literal wake that she has to go to for too many of her black nieces and nephews who are being killed by police. The second is the wake of the slave ship. And she argues that 
We are never post-slavery, post-conflict, post-depression, because we are all in. Are you there? Yeah. That we are all always in the wake of the ship. And the third is what it means to be woke. So she's using this wake as um, as kind of an important metaphor. And it feels to me like because we at the Public Science Project do work on the ground, um, like we were documenting disproportionate police violence against LGBTQ youth of color well before that was in in documented in policy reports, because we were working with activist youth organizations who were reporting this, and then we were studying it. Um, so it gives us a kind of early warning on the um, the vibrating traumas by which social injustice operates. Um, that's why uh, Lois Weiss and I wrote the article Critical Bifocality in the Harvard Ed Review, where we have really insisted that educational research and sociological and psychological research must incorporate an analysis of lives and structures and histories because there's a kind of presentist bias to a lot of educational research, as though these issues just emerge now when, in fact, they have been ingrained in our educational histories, um, whether that's the issue for elite students or poor students, for white students or students of color. Um, and we need to understand that history if we are to both theorize the present moment or imagine what else can be done? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I after hearing your explanation, I think I had a um, misinterpretation of the book, or the title of the uh-huh. book. I thought, before talking with you, I thought this book is a response to, I mean, the contentious times of the contentious times of now. Like in this Trump administration and in this era, like you know, a lot of horrible things happen is are happening now. So, but you actually um, completed the book before two thousand sixteen. Well, that's exactly right, and maybe what you're saying is a compliment rather than a misinterpretation or a sad compliment that. Um, you know, our country has a long, bloody history of white supremacy, racism, um, the degradation of poor and working class people, mistreatment of women. This is a long history. And in some ways, the present moment makes it very visible, um, explicit transparent. You don't need me to tell people that it exists or you or anybody else or the person who lives in the White House will show us the ways in which those dynamics are operating. Um, But 
this is a long history. You know, when Trump was elected, and at least in New York, white people were flipped out and people of color were saying, you know, it, this country's been like this. Um, uh, you know, and you're calling me from Indiana. You you know this <laughs> probably better than I do in in New York City. Although I have to say, I've been shocked at the at the um, unleashing of white supremacy, even on the streets of New York City, where women in hijab can get their scarves removed, where there are swastikas, and where police are shooting young people and assaulting young people of color. Um, in Indiana, you've got a whole other set of um, dynamics, but they're deriving from very similar commitments. So I think in this moment, there's a kind of public unleashing and um, of these dynamics. There's state-sponsored reproduction of injustice and state-sponsored sadism, I would say, um, of um, kind of dangling torture of trans military members or immigrant children or undocumented folks or people of color um, or even, you know, rich Californians who are experiencing fires there's a there's a sadism to state policy now, or at least the rhetoric of state policy, um, that has been slightly more subdued. So it doesn't surprise me that you would interpret this as a contemporary critique, and unfortunately, it works as a contemporary critique. But yes, it was born in the soil of the Obama years, the Bush years, the Clinton years. Um, and it's important for, for us to remember to borrow from Christina Sharp that we are always in the wake. Yeah, I see. Now I understand better. And also, I understand better the metaphor of the early hearing of the earthquake. That metaphor yeah. really explains yeah. this process very well. Yeah. Well, it's one of the joys of critical participatory research um, with people who know injustice all too intimately is that they understand how this country was built, how it operates. They live in the underbelly of state policy, and their lives are totally dependent on state policy in a way that mine isn't. You know, it will be once I need Medicare and Social Security, but... I have to learn the ways in which policy is embroidered into lives of poverty, lives of color, immigrant lives, trans lives, queer lives. Um, I, my One of the privileges of privilege is that one can think one is outside policy when, in fact, the comfort and intimacies and freedoms of my life are are sutured into policies that um, profoundly and negatively affect other communities. So the fact that the same police smile at me as I walk down the street and might be beating up kids of color at night, I, I got to think about what that means, that my comfort 
is premised on a kind of complicity with a system that has been um, so wretchedly abusive forever to indigenous people, to people of color, to immigrants, to poor people, etc. And that's why when I say kind of refugee Jews, I, I always want to acknowledge that that was a group that entered at a moment where immigration policies were very different and privileging of particularly white-skinned immigrants. Um, yeah. So it gave me a, a, a marginalized mm-hmm. lens, but a privileged access. And then those of us who are white and privileged need to really unlearn and relearn what this country has really been. Oh, it's so complex. I mean, if we zoom out a little bit to have this historical yeah. perspective, it's so complex. Exactly. All of these um, issues are really entangled together. Yeah, and and I think it's a um, it's a right moment for us to also switch to more specifically critical participatory action research you have been doing. You have like. Mm-hmm. Documented so many interesting projects in this book, and I um I don't know. Maybe we can start with one. Maybe you can just pick one of them and give us some uh more detailed uh story, a narrative or a story about the project. How you do um critical participatory action research, and specifically how you do this one project that you think is uh very interesting and I'm I'm pretty sure our audience will be interested in that too. Yeah. Sure. Um so anybody who's interested should look at the website for the public science project. Yeah. At the Graduate yeah. Center. We are a a center, like a research collective of traditionally trained researchers, quantitative and qualitative researchers, as well as activists, as well as deeply impacted people, people impacted by various kinds of social injustices. And um, we come together to craft research to document both the, the shape and the consequences of injustice, but also the circuits of privilege um, the forms of resistance and the kind of radical alternative possibilities um, that we should be considering to current arrangements. So let me give you a few examples. Sure. Um, sure. So we've done work in women's prisons with women in prison uh, when college was removed from prisons. In 1994, President Bill Clinton took Pell Grants out of prisons. So in that year, 350 college in prison programs dropped down to eight college in prison programs the next year because Pell Grants were withdrawn. And so for four years, a research collective of, I think it was seven women from inside the prison and five of us from outside worked together every other week to document the impact of college and prison on the women, 
on the prison environment, on their children, on their post-release outcomes, on the guards, and on the colleges who helped to provide the college programming. Um, In another project, we've gotten invited. This is called the Morris Justice Project. Uh, Brett Stout and Maria Torre were invited to work with community groups and lawyers in the South Bronx where uh, families of color were encountering very, very aggressive and abusive policing. Um, And there were three mothers who uh, were already collecting their own data. Uh, They lived on the seventh floor, the fourth floor, and the second floor. So it was Jackie and Fawn. They were taking photos of their sons being beaten up and handcuffed by police and then documenting the practices and then bringing those photos down to the police station as they carted off their sons. And then they, with a lawyer, contacted us and said, could, could you help us do a systematic analysis of community relationships with the police, aggressive policing? Can we together analyze the NYPD data for the 44th precinct by Yankee Stadium? And can we collect our own data? Um, and so again, in the basement of the Yankee Tavern, um, a research team uh, predominantly of people from the community, but also lawyers and researchers put together um, a survey to document people's experiences with the police, positive and negative. They also analyzed the NYPD data on um, what was called stop and frisk. Yes. Um, collected, collected a lot of data. And then there are... Um, you know, there are two key elements to critical participatory work. One is that the perspective of those most impacted are central to shaping the research question, the methods, and the products. And the second is that the research be um, metabolized into uh, materials for organizing, for policy change, and for popular education. So in this case, there was a moment, if people go on the website, you'll see there was a moment where uh, there was a van called the Illuminator that was just offered to us where they could project the data on the side of public housing in the Bronx. So one night at 7 o'clock, As the sun set, um, there were Dominican drummers. And as just when the sun went down right in the neighborhood, there was a public performance of the data of the Marsh Justice Project projected on the side of public housing, the quantitative data, the qualitative data. And it was written as a letter from the community to the NYPD, the New York Police Department. Um, And it's an astonishing kind of public performance of public science. Since then, the data had been used by lawyers in lawsuits against stop and frisk. Since then, the data had been presented at the White House to uh, President Obama's citizen science um, 
seminar. And again, the team goes, so that includes people from the community and people and in that case, Brett Stout, who's a statistician here. Um, and now there's a coalition in New York City of Muslim groups, Black Lives Matter, lawyers against aggressive policing, journalists, queer youth activists, um, com- neighborhood groups that are really organizing for what would community safety look like using these data. Same thing with the prison college study. There are groups mobilizing to use the data to advocate for what else is possible. Um, So our commitments are, you know, to in critical par. Critical is just a placeholder for critical race, feminist, decolonizing, queer theory. That is, we're beginning with an analysis of power and injustice. Participatory means the community that's most impacted is fundamental to shaping the research question. The action is um, the first outcome whether it's, again, a white paper, a legal brief, a community performance, T-shirts, articles in local newspapers, brochures. Um, and the research for us is, is um, designed and taken up with quantitative and qualitative methods by a group that Maria Torre calls a contact zone, very differently positioned people bringing their wisdom together toward what Sandra Harding would call strong objectivity. That is not neutrality, but pouring all of our perspectives into the room to try to craft a question that asks, what's the shape and consequences of the injustice? Who's benefiting? What are the forms of resistance? And what kind of radical possibilities could be generated as alternatives to the current practice? Wow, that's so different from conventional research. Um, in some ways, and in other ways, it's it's got all the bones of conventional research. We use rigorous sampling. We use quantitative and qualitative methods. We are interested in validity, strong objectivity, theoretical generalizability. I think the big difference and actually the most, um, for traditional researchers, the most uh, troubling difference is that we think expertise is widely distributed and doesn't just exist in the academy. Other than that, it's like every other research project. We create shared understandings of what's the literature. We craft a research question together. We have design. We have hard conversations about sampling. We think about validity, but we don't privilege internal validity. We privilege construct validity, contextual validity, and external validity. That is, how does this speak to other communities? Um, and we have an obligation to action. So, you know, it's interesting. People see it as so different and it feels very different because we're in deep relationship. And mm-hmm. the women that we did the research with in, in 1994, we're all, most are out of prison now. We're all still very close friends. They came to 
my mother's funeral when somebody from the team who had been incarcerated got cancer. We were all in the hospital. We go to Diana Ross concerts together all the time. We continue to do research. So the intimacy um, and and the responsibility, what Lee Patel would call responsibility, and the ethics are very different. But the methods, the kinds of data are, are strikingly similar. Um, and, and so I'm sorry if that sounds defensive, but, you know, people say, oh, my God, that is that research? It's absolutely research. It's just democratic. It's ethical. And it's committed to sustainability and um, responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's so interesting. I want you to um, further unpack. First of all, I want you to say a little bit more about researchers' role. I mean, like you and Maria mm-hmm. Torrey, yeah, yeah. researchers' yeah. role in this process. And also you mentioned just now, you said research ethics is different. In what sense research ethics mm-hmm. is different? Good. Um, so I think a lot of people think participatory action research, first of all, a lot of people think it's like four kids and a camera. And it could be that, but... You know, we do large-scale quantitative analyses by and for and alongside community as well. So PAR is not a method. It's an epistemology. That is, it, it doesn't prescribe a way of doing research, but it does insist that knowledge is produced in a variety of bodies and that those who have been treated most unjustly have a um, an acute sense of the research questions that need to be uh, generated. The role of the researchers is um, another, I think, misconception. A lot of people think, you know, uh, researchers should just back off, not participate, just allow uh, the, the kids right, or yeah. the teens mm-hmm. or the community to dictate everything. We have a slightly different view, which is that we all bring a piece of the elephant to the table, oh. that we all have a line of analysis. I certainly understand more about um, privilege and the epistemology of ignorance that that privilege folks carry because I live in that world. Um, but the community understands the, the sharp edges of injustice, how it impacts them. They also know a lot about privilege in a way that privileged communities don't know about them. But my point is that the researchers don't get whited out. We're, we're part of the process, but a humble part of the process. I think that's hard for a lot of researchers, so they shouldn't do part. If they think it's charity or just giving people voice, don't do par. If you're willing to sit and engage hard conversations and take up what Gloria Anzaldua would call choques, that is clashes, conflicts, hard arguments, um, then par might be your cup of tea. Um, at this point, we only enter communities that have asked us in, um, but there are still occasions where an issue, a policy issue is coming down the pike, and we know that. And so we'll gather activists and say, 
should we be documenting how gentrification is related to policing, is related to school closings in black neighborhoods? Um, so folks from universities have something to offer, but we don't have the answer. We don't actually know more than people in communities. We probably know less, but we might know more about research. So it, it, it requires a kind of humility um, and a recognition of multiple forms of expertise. But we don't white ourselves out. Um, you know, I encourage people to come to our summer institutes to, to feel how this can be done in solidarity and with great respect for people in community who have to live there well after the research is over. Um, so that's one issue. It, you asked a second issue. Uh, you um, said research ethics. Uh, yeah. So um, I encourage people to look at the work of Monique Guichard, G-U-I-S-H-A-R-D, and Galetta, Alexis Halkovic, and Peiwei Lu. Um, oh, you mean Pei Wei Li? Oh, you mean Pei Wei Li? I'm sorry, Pei Wei yeah. Li, yeah. Um, who have been documenting important ethical non-negotiables when working with community um, on issues of social injustice. So we've been invited, for instance, to do some work on documenting what's happening in immigration and detention centers. And... Um, before we do that, we're putting together an advisory board of impacted families, DACA students, lawyers, immigration judges in New Jersey at the Center for um, Undocumented Students that Jennifer Ayala runs, that they will be our, our moral compass on you know, do we use people's names or not? How do we be vulnerable and they're not? Do we give away... Uh, secrets of how it is people are surviving. How do we challenge the policies and not further expose the vulnerabilities of community? Um, what knowledge is sacred? Do we talk about, um, you know, there's a debate about damage-centered research and that we don't want to do research that further imposes what Thomas Teo calls epistemological violence on communities or what Eve Tuck calls damage-centered research. But in a lot of our PAR projects, people are saying, you need to show the wounds. You need to show the wounds of injustice as well as our amazing resilience and resistance. Um, so... Um, these ethics conversations are crucial. What's the language that we use? Do we talk about resistors, survivors, victims? Um, do we talk about prisoners, inmates? Do we talk about refugees, immigrants? Do we use words like violent offenders? Because, you know, my tongue is coded in dominant discourses. Most of our tongues are. And so it's only in working with communities that we can generate a kind of ethical praxis for holding all of us accountable. Well, that's very interesting. And as you talk, I think um, there are very two interesting issues I want to further probe a little bit. The first thing is um, 
you mentioned this idea of bearing witness, and it sounds very、um, important to critical participatory action research about this bearing witness. Why? Oh, why?、Um, yeah.、Uh, so I have a new student. Uh, Juan Carlos Garcia goes by the name Choco. He's from El Salvador, and、uh, in fact, he's back there this week. And he's working with the retornados, the people who have been returned from our country. And just before you and I spoke, I was reading his his、um, his paper, and、um, you know, he and I sit often very.、Um, Existentially heavy and sad about will this research matter? Can we accompany movements?、Um, and yet, I think we've come to a soft enough place that says bearing witness, documenting the pain and the radical possibilities, standing alongside. In this case, these are folks who are asking for legal recognition in El Salvador, because when they return home, often people believe they are、um, criminals, as our president has called them, and、um, so that you know they suffer here, they suffer there, and and、um, the consequences: mental health, physical health. Um, suicide are are quite serious. So we're trying to figure out what's the actions associated with bearing witness of standing with. For me, part of it is making other elite white people aware of the lies of the dominant stories that are being told. Right. So I, I've got one little project. He goes home to El Salvador, and he knows internationally what our country has done to that country that helped produce the economic and social struggles of that nation, and then encourage the immigration, and then send them back to、um, to, to be marginalized again. And so, this question of bearing witness feels important for for multiple audiences. One is to policymakers and elites. The other, and more more prominently, to the community itself, to say that we stand in solidarity and we will construct research in solidarity.、Um, and the third, for me, is for us to collectively publish. Academic articles, policy briefs, community articles, newspaper articles that that challenge, as Ignacio Martín Barro would say, the dominant lies that are being told, and so that when people are coming up through teacher ed programs, they have a different construction of why people are emigrating, how they're being treated, the gifts they bring, and the the wounds they endure. Um, so bearing witness feels like a、um, a big heavy category that that in the Trump years we are having to think through even more um,、uh, more more seriously. You know what is the obligation 
of solidarity, of standing with, of sharing resources, of interrupting dominant lies, um, of performing these stories, of creating children's books so that El Salvadorian children know the struggles and strength of their family members who stayed and the struggle and strength of their family members who tried to come to the United States. So you can hear I'm struggling because I think you ask a good question. Right now, it's hard. If we only measure the strength of our work by whether or not Lindsey Graham agrees or, mm-hmm. um, or Pence agrees, we will feel hopeless. If we see the, the, the tentacles or circuits of our work on the ground, in education, with children, in social relationships, standing together so that they don't divide us, um, if we see the impact of our work in court when stop and frisk was challenged and there were Muslim and LGBTQ and black and immigrant young people and elders standing together, not fighting with each other, standing together in solidarity. That's another way for us to bear witness for solidarity. And I think that's something universities can offer, a place where groups can come together who wouldn't automatically know that their fates were entangled. Yeah, so... I think I understand this bear witness better after your explanation because it's far more beyond just getting jotting down some evidence about what is happening now. It's about having this evidence or having this lived documenting this lived experience for solidarity and for sowing the seed for future social activists, future activism, uh, future social activism, and for a lot more things that we can do based on what we have here. I think that's right. I, I, but, I, but I think this is a moment for universities to think through, particularly public universities, but also private ones that get a lot of public money, what is our debt to those who are suffering? What is our debt to those who have been excluded? What is our debt to justice? And what resources can we mobilize? Human resources, financial, educational, Xerox machines, space, legitimacy, um, to align ourselves with struggles for dignity um, and human justice. Um, Many of my colleagues have grants with pharmaceutical companies or Department of Homeland Security or Department of Defense, and none of those are seen as political or advocacy Um, they're seen as partnerships. And yet when we align ourselves with Black Lives Matter or UndocuQueer or um, uh, reproductive justice organizations or communities against aggressive policing, that's seen as political. So we've got to 
those of us in the academy have to really challenge those distinctions because we're making alliances. It's just some protect the status quo. Um, you know, when universities get all that money from the Koch brothers, that's a partnership. Um, but it's not seen as kind of political advocacy uh, in quite the same ways that allying with progressive movements uh, is. And again, it would be fun to get together with people from California and Texas and, you know, Indiana has its own weird, wild history um, to say, you know, what's considered political work and what's just considered a partnership. Um, Because I think in New York, you know, we're we're working in relatively progressive soil. um, So people know better than to think working with the CIA or Coke is um, not not political. Um, But I don't know if that's true in Indiana. And, you know, public universities are now vulnerable because the state legislators have taken a lot of their money, that they're vulnerable to these conservative corporate um, and philanthropic influences. Uh, yeah, So exactly. I think we have to bear witness within our institutions as well as outside. Yeah, exactly. And, and I hear you... Um, you are problematizing this distinction between partnership and uh, political advocacy as how, you know, public universities characterize their sponsorship or, you know, um, like funding. I mean, they are just so, um, it's the issues are just so real and uh, um, the problem that, problematization is very uh, I would say uh, must be provocative so have you uh, have you ever experienced any pushback both within the institution and uh, outside the institution uh, yeah um, you know uh, let's see we created the Public Science Project um, to create a space in the institution where we could bring together very differently um, situated folks to do work in alliance with movements. We have not had pushback against that, and to the and and we bring in a lot of money because there are a lot of like government agencies who now want to turn their data into a participatory database or make it more um, organized toward racial justice. So I think the fact that we bring in a lot of money protects us a little. And we move, we move all the money into the community. I never take any money from grants because I already have a job. Um, and so we then move the resources into the community. But um, I have, a few years ago, I was deeply involved with a fight against privatization of public schools in New Jersey. Um, and uh, many of the pro-charter, protest, pro-testing, not protesting, that's funny, um, and, you know, high stakes testing and pro voucher folks um, were trying to take over our local school district. And 
some were Republicans, but lots were Democrats. And I was just, you know, pretty vocal as kind of a public intellectual questioning the data that they were circulating and the lies they were telling. So I was seen as kind of a a traitor um, to their commitments. Anyway, they brought a, um, a freedom of information lawsuit against me at CUNY and demanded all of the emails between me and I think it was 38 teachers, union activists, and civil rights activists in my town. So they named the names and they sued, They uh, brought this charge to CUNY to demand any emails that were on my CUNY email. Um, so that was kind of shocking. And then what was more shocking to me was that CUNY handed over those emails. So even though the New York Civil Liberties Union said, you don't have to do it, um, other lawyers contacted CUNY and said, don't do it. You're, you know, they have no right to these. CUNY handed over the emails. All of those emails are now loaded on a website called something like Montclair Schools Watch. Um, and, you know, the good thing was they were looking for conspiracy and all they found was that I often curse in my email. So for those of you who want to hear me cursing, go right on to the emails and um, enjoy it. Um, and and there is something freeing about having all of your emails public. It's like you got nothing to hide after that. Um, so I was repulsed that the public university would cave into the demands of the privatizing corporate interests. Um, but it didn't stop me. And I found a number of people, public, progressive public intellectuals around the country at University of Wisconsin, University of Massachusetts, University of Texas, University of California, uh, Rutgers University, Georgia State, where the same tactics had been used. This was, again, before Trump. Um, so now they're using every... This was even before... Hillary and the Benghazi emails. Um, So it was an early tactic. Um, But there was, as soon as they posted all my emails, I was in South Africa at the time, and I woke up one morning and there was a, a petition launched kind of in my defense. I, I don't even know what defense I need. Anyway, but like 5,000 people had signed it from all over the world. Um, And it was just so gorgeous. And I would get emails like, the teachers of Malta love you, Michelle. And it was just so beautiful that if I had to be slightly sacrificed, even though it didn't, didn't feel very sacrificed, but if I had to be the voice that pierced the anesthesia, that opened it up, that dared to say we shouldn't be colluding in privatization and I'll pay a minor price, that it was so worth it because it just mobilized people to have the courage. Um, And then lots of people who had been attacked by ALEC, you, you know ALEC, the Alliance for Legislative Exchange, I think it is. They're all over Indiana. I think they were uh, Yeah. 
Anyway, but yeah, it's a a right wing legislative group. Um, These are their tactics. So it it helps spawn another layer of resistance and mobilization and and um, and encourage. So, you know, yeah, if you take a risk, you might be attacked. And those of us with privilege should be the first ones who take the risk so we can take the attack because it, it actually didn't affect my life very much. And it certainly didn't affect my work. I wasn't fired. Um, And, you know, in some ways it it garnered strength from others. Well, so thank you for sharing. I didn't know there was a, almost like a, a public event or some, you know, I didn't know there was such a case there, but thank you for sharing. And we, now we could see um, the price you need to pay if you want to do just uh, research and, you know, and, and the strength you can draw from it. Uh, yeah. What I would say to you all is don't use your public university email to, to, do, your, to do that kind of work. Um, it's uh, even though I, you know, I still take the position that I was hired as a public intellectual. I was just communicating with people about the work we were doing. If you don't want to jeopardize other people, don't use your institutional email. I see. Well, that's a that's a good uh, suggestion. For... It's a good suggestion. <laughs> Many of us have learned from this. I see. Yeah. But thank you for sharing. I mean, I think we can see um, from the stories and from the projects, from what you have experienced, we can see the multiple facets of doing this kind of very grounded work. Yeah. The complexities and the um, ethical concerns and all of these issues involved in this process. Oh, but also the joy and the hilarity and the relationships yeah. and the humility right. and the, um, <laughs> you know, just the radical wit of working yeah. with people who have endured so much and still are generous enough to allow somebody like me into their lives so that we can do work together and stitch together. Um, pieces of evidence that tell a different story toward a very different tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, surely about that. I really want to uh, highlight this part, but for yeah. some reason, we just go into a different route. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, to talk about, yeah, but right, I uh, I think that part is needs to be highlighted and that's invaluable the invaluable work you and your colleagues have been doing and of course the public science project i always use that when i teach my uh, qualitative research courses but uh, then i i didn't really know for example the morris justice um, project was Mm. actually initiated by the community members there oh yeah and so was so was changing minds the prison project. Um, yeah. We're we're very lucky, you know. We don't just show up and say, "You want to do research?" or "Can I come in?" But sometimes <laughs> we do. If we hear something is 
coming down the road, we will contact our activist allies and say, maybe we need to do a piece of work on this. Like, like you know, now we're looking at, um, at uh, teachers who are openly gay and lesbian, even in a city like New York where they're protected to be gay, lesbian, or trans, they're not necessarily protected to be out as gay, lesbian, and trans. So, you know, we're starting a new project on the consequences of being out and an archive of LGBTQ teachers. And maybe some teachers from Indiana will want to participate with us because I think you're living even a more closeted existence in the schools. And yet, we're going to use the privilege of those folks who are out when the courage and of the university to try to open up what's it mean for us to be denying educators their full lives. What are the consequences for them and for the kids and for bullying? Um, because when anybody's in the closet, the whole school is, is a hotbed of bullying and, and, you know, when a teacher is in the closet, a child with Down syndrome is getting beat up because there's a culture of complicity um, with silencing and abuse. And we're going to document that. So maybe we can play across across state lines. Wow. Then maybe our podcast can help you recruit some new research participants, our your community um, researchers like researchers from the communities in Indiana. Absolutely. We would love that. Uh, Somebody should contact me if they want to do that work with us because we're we're meeting tomorrow night and, um, and we're deciding how to move ahead because this feels like a really, a really important issue. And uh, even though New York city should be way ahead um, on the issue of being out, it's still pretty precarious. And I know that I think in Indiana, LGBTQ teachers aren't don't even enjoy protection, human rights protection, do they? You know? Uh, I think not entirely protected. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a sincere request. I, I think it would be really fun for us to be together on that. Well, yeah. Well, and also our podcast is available for people all over the world. So I hope well, not anywhere, only... Exactly. So we're creating yeah. an archive of LGBTQ teachers. Anybody mm-hmm. who wants to participate should send me an email and we will just send you an open-ended question and we're going to collect stories with names, without names, um, because this is a whole history that's unknown, a whole right. history that's and and as one of the lesbian teachers said, um, she said, "I don't mean to be arrogant, but I think we create classrooms of chosen family, and it's not just the popular kid or the smart kid or the outspoken kid that gets all the attention. I think we actually create different classrooms, so." When that history is not known, there is so much knowledge that is also closeted. Yeah. And also, it will be great if our podcast can help you raise the profile of this new project. That'd be fabulous. We would love, really love that. Right. Sure. Cool. Yeah. Well, 
we have been uh, like we have we have been taking so much time from we have been taking so much time from you today, and it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about not only your um, previous research experience but also to talk about this new project, which is very exciting. Very and, exciting. Uh, yeah, and. And before we end up, uh, before we end, uh, we we end our interview. I I still want to ask one more question, which is the impact of the critical participatory action research. I think the projects, all the projects, for example, the public science project, is very impactful. But I want to hear from you, like, you know, what are some of the um, sure. Uh, echoes or uh, impacts of the projects. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so uh, our colleagues Sean Massey and Ricardo Barreras have actually published on impact validity in a way that's really beautiful, and I encourage people to look at their essay in the Journal of Social Issues. Um, I think we think about impact in four ways. Um, one is um, just on the ground, the relationships sutured together in our projects um, that really build kind of ligaments of solidarity across university and community, but also across communities. So that's not nothing. It, it's actually something, particularly in times of um, polarization and binaries and oppositions and groups being pitted against each other. So as I said earlier, the fact that we can do research with and alongside and then together as the Muslim community, the Black community, the queer community, the undocumented community, the immigrant community, um, on, on, and, and the domestic violence community who's tired of women of color being arrested when they call the cops on, on, uh, on their men. So I, I, there are new solidarities being formed um, across. Um, that's one. The second is um, we always produce materials for popular education in the community so that there's a kind of obligation to give back to the community the knowledge that they have so generously dedicated to the projects and to use that to build local alternative solutions. So in the Bronx now, um, there's what's what they call sidewalk science, where they bring the data to every block. They tell them how many stops and frisks there were um, in the last year and how else might a community mobilize to create safety, right? Is it community policing? Is it no police? Is it community um, restorative justice practices? Is it retraining of the police? Uh, is it, you know, so is it civilian accountability boards? But they are building local practices. The third is um, policy work. Um, so again, every one of our projects has a policy document that comes out of it, whether it goes to court 
or it goes online about the impact of college and prison, or it becomes a video of LGBTQ out teachers, or a meeting with the mayor about you can't just support people when they're in the closet. We've got to be able to support people to be out. Um, So there's policy. And the fourth is academic publications to make sure that what is taught tells the whole story and not just the dominant story. So those four, the relationships, the, the community products, the policy products, and the scholarly products all feel really important. I'm sure there are a thousand more on each of our projects. Sometimes we do theater, sometimes we do performance, sometimes we do special hearings with state legislators or with rich white people or with foundations. Um, We've done a lot of work recently with foundations on no research on us without us across communities. So one has to think about impact in a complex way. Again, if Lindsey Graham is your only audience, it's not going to feel like a very empowering moment. Um, But if we think about impact in a in a thick way, uh, I think this work can feel like it's just part of a massive movement uh, for social change. Not the only part, not alone, um, but in in solidarity with organizing, with policy, with activists, and with the people most impacted. Wow. That sounds so powerful. And I, we hope you continue, you and your colleagues continue to bring forward more positive changes through all of these impacts, through building up relationships, through working with communities, through publishing your works and through creating all the, you know, the, um, the the publications for the communities and podcasts that say here's <laughs> another way to do research. It has a long yes. history, a long history, an international history in South America, in South Africa, through the Highlander right. Center, even yes. in Indiana. It has a long history, but it just gets whited out in the canon. So it is time for all of us to remember that research can be organized toward justice, not just toward a more colonial project. Exactly. Thank you, Peng Fei. Thank you, thank you. And thank you for including podcast here. It's it's one of our impacts. Now I got it. (laughs) Well, thank you. And... uh, um, we hope in the nearest future we can invite you for another podcast to talk about your new books. Cool, cool, wonderful. Yeah. I look forward. Sure, it's a, it's a really pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, you Michelle. Too. Thank you, Peng. Bye. Bye. Bye.